0: Hello oh, and welcome to Formula for Success. I'm David Coulthard, and alongside me in the studio is my old buddy Eddie Jordan.
1: How are you, EJ? Yeah, I'm in great shape. No arrh today. I'm sort of arrr'd out. Arr'd out. You but you look well rested and you you know I mean, you're like a coiled springs. So you're clearly ready to go. Only because you're here. You you get the most out of me, David. You sweet talker. Uh, Well, today we're going to reveal what we
0: think are the best and worst racetracks in Formula One, past or present. I'll share it from a driver's perspective, and EJ, of course, you can from a team principal. I suspect it will all be about the restaurants, the wine selection, or where you had the most chance of robbing some money out of uh, unsuspecting partners and sponsors. Um, And anyway, uh, we're going to uh, start it off by, um, I think we should go... With, if I hit it, EJ, with my favorites were always the M's. So I I always enjoyed Melbourne, Montreal, Monaco. There was another M on there called Mokpo in Korea, which wasn't definitely one of my, my favorites. That was a bizarre place, shipbuilding uh, area. I think they'd uh, invested in building a racetrack there. Thinking they would create a sort of French Riviera, um, but the hotels we all stayed in—they were—they were very bizarre. There was like love motels, you know, because you've got a lot of shipbuilding, so obviously a lot of guys that are looking for a bit of entertainment.
1: No, but they used to rent the rooms by the hour, didn't they? Uh, it was very busy. I then. just slept faster. No, no. They had to close all those uh, love hotels down to accommodate the teams and the crew. I remember I have a photograph, I think, of you somewhere lurking around the place between yourself, myself, and Jake Humphrey. And uh, When we were on BBC. Keeps, when he keeps sending it to me because uh, I remember six hour. Land in Korea or uh, in, in Seoul. Seoul and then get on a bus for six hours to get to the track was absolutely.
0: Terrible. I, I thankfully didn't do that. I flew into the, uh, the local private
1: airfield. Ah, yeah. Okay. But then that's you, David. You see, you have a, a friendship range which is vastly above where my friendship range
0: is. <laughs> well, that made that a lot easier. But if I go with uh, the, the races that I mentioned, why I really enjoy them, any Grand Prix where if you're close to the city and you get to experience a little bit of the local you know, wildlife, you know, the local culture. Um, that, to me, really takes a Grand Prix to another level. Anyone that's had the opportunity to go to Montreal, for instance, will know that although Montreal is not a beautiful city, it's a bit weather-beaten, it's perched beside a sort of small mountain, or it's not really a mountain, but a small hill, and the St. Lawrence Seaway, and in the middle of the St. Lawrence Seaway is where the, the Grand Prix track sits. In rec- I think it was actually
1: built on reclaimed land, was it not from the old uh, expo? It was. It wasn't the expo. It was built. It was the Olympics. The Olympics. Okay. Yeah, the Olympic Village in Montreal. But you know, I, I would share that view. I think Montreal. The only thing that has changed. Uh, I love the people because that's where you and I. Have a couple of great friends. Uh, when I went there first, uh, Lawrence Troll was hugely uh, hospitable to me and uh, my team. Uh, it's ironic that he should now, you know, own your old team. The ashes from <laughs> Jordan are now in Aston Martin. So well done to Lawrence. Um, but there was also a great guy, and we've talked about him in the show, uh, Gila Liberté from Cirque du Soleil. I mean, he used to have the best parties uh, out in his house for all the visiting guests. It was just remarkable. He was just so generous, wasn't he? And uh, Montreal would be right there as far as I'm concerned. But I'm actually going to go back further than that because I'm not sure if you've ever raced in Adelaide, but Adelaide... I did, 95. I crashed out of
0: leading the the final race. Cost me quite a lot of money, thanks for reminding me.
1: Yeah, Well, I loved Adelaide. And a couple of reasons why I loved it. And in actual fact... um, Prof Watkins saved uh, your teammate's life there because uh, Mika Häkkinen should have died. My God, how he managed to save him! I don't realize, and and Häkkinen is still the same. He's still wandering around Monaco. He, he's full full of the joys of spring. And ladies, and gentlemen, yes, he still does like to have a little drink. Um, will you get him on the show? Absolutely. Uh, no, no, he has promised to be on the show. I asked him the last time, only last week. And um, so we will have him on the show. That's great. Um, my, my lasting memory of Adelaide was because they were the people, in my opinion, that brought a different emphasis to fun at the Grand Prix. And this particular year, they used to have... Uh, the party in a separate little area where the drivers and, and the team bosses and the mechanics could could be and watch after the Grand Prix had happened. Uh, and I remember uh, Tina Turner going to the crowd, picking up Ayrton Senna. Uh, he had just been the world champion at that stage, brought him on stage, and she sang Simply the Best. And it was Fantastic. such a moving moment, and I'll never, ever forget that. And that's why my heart, I, I was sad when... Melbourne, you know, they had the power, they had the political power, they had the cash, they had a lot of things going for them. Uh, and I love what they did in Melbourne. But I also loved if we could have two races in any one country like that, I'd vote to go back to Adelaide. It was fantastic.
0: Yeah, Adelaide was, was definitely a, it, you know, it's a different setting, isn't it? It, it feels more oldie worldly and yeah. Melbourne feels a lot more sort of powerhouse of modern city. But I love how you've got the the river there flowing? I think it's the Yarra River. You you stay beside it. I used to cycle from the hotel to the racetrack. It's in the the uh, the park there in the middle of Melbourne, which I believe uh, Oscar Piastri grew up within
1: spitting distance of were that park. Are you missing the two? Are you talking about Melbourne? Are you talking about I've Melbourne? I've gone to Melbourne. Melbourne, Melbourne. You've yeah. moved on. Yeah. I've okay. Because I, I thought on. you were going to tell us about Hindley Street, because that was a fairly. Uh, <coughs> Active Street. In I the don't reme- of- I don't remember that. I don't remember that. <laughs> it's a fairly street. busy street at night.
0: <laughs> no, no, I, I didn't uh, frequent. There was those. I was only in Adelaide once. But um, anyway, but anywhere where you can be in the city and close to the racetrack, I think, gives you a much richer sporting experience. And then you've got the the outliers, the the, the tracks like Spa and Suzuka, for instance, brilliant racetracks, incredibly challenging for a driver, incredibly rewarding, therefore, if it all works out but they're in the middle of nowhere. And unless you like to go walking naked in the Ardennes forest, there isn't really much to do around Spa than drive race cars. Well, I'd
1: hope if you did wear naked, you'd at least have a raincoat with you, because invariably, uh, it rains It Does Does Um, that not make you a bit of a flasher? (laughs) Well, funny you should say that, because I think the two circles that you've mentioned, if you were to actually sit down racing drivers, past and present, And what is the circuit that gives you the absolute utmost buzz? You know, for one reason, you'll think about Monaco because of its complexity, you know, so close to the barrier, slightest mistake and you're in trouble. Uh, But then the other drivers will turn around and say, you know, Thirty or thirty-four, whatever that is, or one thirty R. One thirty R. Thanks for that, David. Um, at Suzuka is one of the great corners, and, and even the one at the end of the start finish, just oh, the uh, double right, yeah, massive. Yeah. So Suzuka is a real driver circuit, Spa's an outright driver circuit, and you'll probably be much more capable of telling us what the other ones are.
0: Well, there's been many great tracks over over the history of time. Uh, I recently drove. The, the old Norschleifer, the Nürburgring, uh, there was a, a running show car event there. So I had the chance to drive, uh, I think it's 2012 um, Red Bull Formula One car. And oh, what a circuit. Thankfully, there's three points where you have to uh, drive slowly. Otherwise, it triggers a, a noise sensor, which then triggers an automatic red flag around the circuit. And I say thankfully, because otherwise there's... There's adrenaline and the joy of driving a race car and there's fear. And it would be frightening for many laps to get comfortable around the North Slipher. And they amazingly still race there and, you know, touring car races and, and what have you. But what a track. We'll never see the likes of that again.
1: Um, when you say to that, you know, Hans Stuck uh, in a BMW M35, whatever it was, and he uh, at least four or five feet in the air over some of the yumps, I mean... We don't have racing like that anymore, do we, for whatever reason? But he was such a Health and safety.
0: We've been so many crashes, that's why. And, Um, you know, people will always find crazy ways to go and, you know, push the boundaries and the limits. But, of course, we're a highly regulated sport, and everything has to
1: be controlled. I absolutely loved, and when I was driving, I loved Silverstone for all the reasons. And I think because it's so close to us and it's you get familiar... uh, familiarization of the place and you kind of don't think of it in the greatness but it has to be you know there's some corners there absolutely cops and, and stow. some amazing corners okay they've changed it for safety reasons and all sorts of things and they have motorbikes there now so there's a, a complication where you've got to be uh, clued into both regulations and, and both structures of racing so tell me what your view is on Silverstone
0: I think Silverstone has one of the most iconic sequences of corners the uh, the Beckett's corners, you enter maggots flat out, you know, pulling serious amounts of G as you then drop a gear, pull it through the left and the middle part of Beckett's, and then finally out onto a longer right hander onto Hangar Straight, and then through the little kink down the hangar straight. And it's almost, as you know, is an incredibly flat, it's an old airfield, but there there's a, a visible drop off as you go down towards Stowe Corner underneath the, the bridge. And it's fantastic. It is an adrenaline-fueled lap. It's a circuit where you do need the car talking to you, and you'll know that as an ex-racer. Some circuits you can have a little bit out of balance and you can still deliver a lap time. Silverson, you know, like that long corner onto hanger straight. If you've got understeer, you've got understeer. You, you can at that speed do anything to sort of destabilize the rear to then help neutralize the balance where you might be able to at lower speed corners so it is a classic sort of you know human being and and machine in perfect harmony if you're delivering good laps around there but the yeah what i am always amazed is when we go to these new circuits and there have been some eyebrow raising circuits like the street circuit in Jeddah, you know, the drivers, that is a high speed street circuit, you know, their eyeballs are out in stocks when they they drive a lap there. But a lot of the modern tracks have come up short in that they've been so sort of focused on runoffs that there isn't the same feeling of consequence. And they kind of just all become a bit soulless in a way. Um, I think Malaysia had a bit of character to it. It was one of the sort of modern, let's say it's not modern anymore, of course, it was. It came out in the 90s, but um, it was one of the sort of first of the Tilki tracks, which which had backbone and character and consequence, which a lot of the modern tracks have sort of lost, which is why I find it interesting that Formula One having driven down a route with the FIA of of monster runoff areas that pushes the fans back, we've also seen an increase in the amount of street circuits recently because the people who invest in Formula One want to to see that sort of spectacle. And they want to bring the fans into the cities to stay in
1: the hotels, to spend in the restaurants, which clearly doesn't happen if you're out in in the middle of the forest. Money drives most things in industry and business economics, and you only have to look at the structure of the GDP of any country. It's footfall, people uh, in rooms, on pillows, in beds, and generally, uh, they need to be near an airport and they need near to be a city. And uh, I was going to ask you about Baku, because for me, I don't know why, but I absolutely loved it. I thought it was great. has that because we shared a room? Um Actually, it was where we shared a room, yeah. Is That's that why you loved it? reason. Yeah. Can we go back? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Not to the same bedroom, please. No, no, we'll have separate
0: rooms this time. Um, yeah, you you slept like Dracula, or, uh, where, you know, if Dracula's an actual thing, you crossed your chest and... Didn't make a noise the rest of the Well, the re- only
1: reason that is because we decided to have a drink before we went to dinner. Really? Uh, and then we never went for dinner because we stayed in the bar. And that's all your fault. It's called celebrating life. Ah, okay. Yeah, so I think we've done that quite a lot then
0: recently. We have indeed. Back to racetracks. Um, places where we could go back to. Well, and maybe not the track, but country. I really enjoyed Argentina. Buenos Aires was a great, you know, you stayed in, in Buenos Aires. You, it was about half an hour out to the racetrack. Estoril, we used to stay in Cascais and the, the racetrack sat up on the hillside looking over the coast. You know, these were great racetracks. And there'll be places like, like I never raced in Kailami, but you spend time in South Africa. I've driven Kailami. We Kailami. Great together. track. Yep. Top Gear. We went there together. Um, Nürburgring, Fuji. There, there's so many great tracks. Now, Are they likely ever to come back in one shape or or form? Or do you think now we're at, what, 22 Grand Prix this year? And I think Formula One have announced they won't go beyond 24. We're we're running out of opportunity to go back to these
1: old classic, or certainly back to these countries. It's probably going to be an emerging country. David, there's a circuit that hasn't been mentioned. And I must tell you that I think it was a very demanding circuit. I think it was ready-made for a talented driver, and that is the great brands hatch. And um, you've raced there millions of times on your way up to Formula One, and we all have. And I mean, the past the start and finish when the circuit and the road, you don't actually see where you're turning into because the apex of the corner is, is gone and then it just falls away from you and and then you got that drop in it. I mean, please tell me what's that like in a Formula One car?
0: It, well, I've I've been round there doing a demonstration in F1. I've never raced there in Formula One, but it was the home of the British Grand Prix for, for many years and then yeah. it swapped with with Silverstone and now Silverstone's become that that structure that facility and and that will continue brands would would need a major refurb you know the the paddocks so small and all that stuff but i totally agree if we put to one side the facilities which are perfectly good you know let's say national um level facilities it was a great track and it had life and form and, and undulation and Blind corners, like you said, and rising and falling. And there's some other great tracks in the UK, like Alton Park, that a lot of people would not have heard of, but they, they certainly raced at a high level there. Cadwell Park. Cadwell Park, up over the mountain. Oh my God. I, I spun at the top of the mountain, ended up in a wire fence. Um, so these are all great racetracks. And Britain has, has many good national racetracks. And it's one of the reasons why I'm really keen for, for my son, if he progresses into cars, to do his, you know, cut his teeth in British tracks. Because if you can handle all those circuits, when well, you go to a Monza or you go to a Magello, they're they're quite straightforward in comparison. If
1: Dayton is racing, say, Formula Four, two thousand, or whatever the equivalent is now, and Formula Four, I think they call it, um, you know, they're sitting at full throttle for a very, very long time. Whereas um Formula One, these circuits and corners come up with you very quickly. Um, I think it's kind of boring what's going on. Um, not boring for Formula One, but certainly for the junior formulas, it must be very difficult to race in a place like, like Monza because uh, it's it's a flat out bind, isn't it? Whereas I think Brands Hatch in the day, you were electric. You got out of the car and you knew you'd been in a race because the perspiration was Everywhere, and um, because you're busy in the car, very busy, because you you got left, right, left, right, quick braking, then the undulation and the ups and downs. It was a fantastic, fantastic race.
0: I, I liken it to a roller coaster. You know, may, some racetracks are like that, and they give you such a rush. <laughs> We're going to move on to some listeners' questions. And we're going to go straight away. This is for EJ um, from a guy called Christian. And he goes, uh, loves the podcast. Thank you for that, Christian. Um, he wants to know how you were able to squeeze so much better performance and results out of the Peugeot engines compared to Alain Prost. And he also wants to know, um, he always wanted to have a Jordan Peugeot shirt, but he was only eight years old at the time and couldn't convince his parents to buy him one. Do any of those, I guess go on eBay, they might still sell those. But before before he goes and discovers where he can find a shirt, what was the difference actually? I, I, I don't recall how much better
1: you were than Prost that year. We were always better than Pross. come on, except when he was racing <laughs> when I was racing. He, he dumped me out of uh, when I was in that Formula 3 team uh, with Marlborough. This, this, a shorter guy than me even with a very dodgier nose than mine uh, turned up and he turned and he said his name was Alain Prost and I raced against him and said oh my god this guy is so talented and it proved to be so yeah as Bernie always used to say before Max turned up um, that Prost was his absolute hero uh, four times world champion he finished um one point away from being a world champion another year and half a point the following year so so easy could have been six Alan Prost was brilliant but listen that's not fair because he's saying that I, I had much better results I'd like to remind the listeners because Ron Dennis was all supreme in that time and he gave the Peugeot engine to me because he wanted to go to Mercedes, and uh, Ron, being Ron, um, thought rang me up and thought he'd have a nice little deal to give me. But I kind of knew what was going on, so I was facilitating him. But he thought he was facilitating me, so he wanted me to pay him. But you know, DC, what happens? I'm in the receiving business. I'm not in the giving business, so I didn't <laughs> want to give him any money. But you know, some years ago. And it was brought up at a recent podcast with Jean Alessi that when we were looking up at the podcast, Jean won his the sole Grand Prix that he won. Uh, he had Both sides of him was uh, Rubens Barrichello and Eddie Irvine. And that was second and third in a Peugeot. And that was their best ever Results in Formula One was in a Jordan Peugeot, uh, so far better than than Prost and much better than the great McLaren. So uh, that's my little claim to fame.
0: Yeah, I only remember the the Peugeot. I, I think it was in the back of Martin Brundle's McLaren. It blew itself to pieces sitting on the grid before the British Grand Prix. It it didn't seem to be the most reliable of engines.
1: I think he had that car when he had that when you talked about earlier about Melbourne. I mean that was where he had one of the all and There's that was a Jordan Peugeot. Yeah, we must have Martin on the program because. Because A, you were his manager, and he drove for me on two different occasions, brilliantly in Formula 3, and in a difficult time with us in Formula 1. Uh, but he has a wealth of knowledge, great storyteller. Uh, so why don't you work your magic wand and get Martin on the show, sir? Yeah, we'll see if Martin can... Uh conjure up some time
0: for us. And just to be clear, I, he was my manager. I wasn't his manager. No, sorry, he, well. he's, he's older than me. Um, right, we're going to move on. We've got Anders from Norway. And this is a question for me. Uh, there's a video going around uh, from what he believes is the 2010 season where Martin Brundle, Damon Hill, and you, EJ, uh, were asked to predict driver and constructors world championships. And he says, his words, I had the balls to predict Red Bull and say Vettel is the winner. And you all laughed me off from, uh, I, you know, he all laughed me off the show, basically, could no one uh, would imagine he'd go on to win it. Now, I was convinced that they were in a great position, because every time there's been a major rule change, that's the sort of window for an Adrian Newey and his team of merry designers to come up with innovation. So that's why I was so confident that was going to be Vettel and
1: Red Bull. Um, none of you guys ever apologized, did you? What? Wow. Um, are you claiming that that's one of the only occasions that you've come off the fence? Because I have certainly never made you or heard you predicting anything, it's ever. It's on, it's, go, go on YouTube, it's out there. Anyway, if that be the case, and I'm quite sure that uh, uh, Anders is correct in his assumption, um, I applaud you, because uh, not alone uh, was it a brilliant uh, guess, but it also was educated, educated, yes. educated I guess but uh, it's also probably the only time ever that you've ever made a prediction well, thank you for that. I'll take that and move on quickly before
0: you have the time to uh, take okay. it back. Right, here's one uh, from uh, Daniel Gomes, Gomez, sorry if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, uh, saying he's only just discovered the podcast uh, using the YouTube shorts, and he's uh, very happy about that. Well, that's great, Daniel. Um, so he then goes on to say that uh, you're a legend of Formula One, and uh, he he's from South Africa originally. He's now living in Cyprus. And he's got many good memories watching the race on a Sunday with his brother and listening to the late, great Murray Walker. What a brilliant commentator he was. Absolutely. Now, this uh, gen- gentleman, Daniel, is 48. He's got kidney disease. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Mm-hmm. Daniel, this is taking a twist. And it's really wonderful and comforting to listen to your podcast three times a week during my four hour long dialysis sessions. Well, we're very happy, Daniel, to have you uh, on board. Uh, he says he's constantly got a smile on his face, listening to the banter and stories he particularly likes when you get guests on and they give us the backstory to many of the things that went on behind the scenes. Fingers crossed you can get on many more. Well, that's you, EJ, that brings on the guests. So I'll leave that to you. Now, here's the question. Eddie, I hope you're enjoying Cape Town. And the question for you, Bill Tong.
1: Or dry wars. I've got no idea what that is. What's biltong or dry wars? Oh, come on, you must know what biltong is. The best thing ever in your life. It's dried meat. So instead of you going in and having your posh fillet steak, medium rare or pink or whatever it is, this is something that has been cured and it's cut up. Instead of having, you know, you get your diabetes from all that oversweetness and stuff like that. Have biltong instead. You can now buy it in packets. It's amazing, David.
0: Okay, I'm you don't know what a, you're missing. Well, I'm going to give that a go. What is dry wars? Uh, it's 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 a sausage, effectively. How big is this sausage? I don't uh, like to be intimidated. I don't want by, to be
1: explicit on this program, David. Well, look, give, give us a, a
0: give us a rough idea. Is it well, a frankfurter
1: about, or is it chipolata or? No, I think it's something around seven or eight inches long and. It's, okay, it's, it's, so okay, comfortable. <laughs> uh, David, I want to tell a story about Murray Walker, if I may, because yes, he, I think he's you're talking to... about the late great Murray Walker. Well. You know, Murray Walker is, in my opinion, he reminds me of DC uh, because DC is one of these guys uh, who is one person when they're in front of a camera and he's out socializing and then when there's a bit of madness going on, he's a completely different other person. But I remember having a race with Murray Walker and I hope there's no one from the uh, airways or the air safety because I remember being on a tray a metal tray at one end of an aeroplane as it's taking off. Uh, And as the plane took off, Murray was on one side of the aisle and I was on the other and we had a race to see who could get it onto the at the end. Of course we should have had seatbelts and it was actually totally immature and it should never have happened. But you know something? It was unbelievable fun. And I think Murray got there before me because of his extra weight. <laughs> Please tell me he was commentating as he was he going was down to the, great, the When alley. he and James Hunt, and they were the most magic days for me. Um, I have to be honest that I think BBC uh, some great characters, and I think BBC probably. I won't say they've missed out a bit, but the, the characters that they used to have in rugby and cricket and Formula One with James and uh, James and Murray, they were synonymous to Formula One. Everyone waited to hear, you know, the chain come on, not the anchor, the chain, and then the, the voice of of Murray because he was such a professional. He would not go on air without having spent days and hours preparing and having all his notes and everything was in tiny, tiny script. But he knew everything about everybody. And the most consummate professional I've ever come across in the media world, Murray Walker, I hope God is good to him. Yeah, absolutely. Murray Walker, what
0: a legend absolute, the voice of Formula One and will always be. Um, right. We've got another one here, which is uh, very simply um, our favorite teammates. Um, that's from Jamesh. Um, well, look, it's difficult to have a, a, a team mate, you know, a friend um, when you're, competing for victories. And, you know, so a perfect example would be, I was seven years with Mika as a, as a teammate. We did a lot of different things around the world. We traveled, we attended events, we had some fun nights, but I can't say being a teammate to him was, was a fun experience. And that's not just because he was, was quick, but you're so focused on trying to beat each other. Today, I love spending time with Mika. You know, I, I, I find the guy so much fun, interesting in a wonderful, weird way, you know, sees life differently, uh, lives life differently. And I think he's, he's, he's brilliant. Um, really, I wouldn't have no problem being marooned on a desert island. You know, in many ways, um, you know, another great buddy now, Mark Weber, difficult to really explore that friendship when you're teammates, you know, Mark was at a different phase of his career. Definitely I was in the twilight and he was the, the coming man. Um, we only had really one disagreement, which was in in Shanghai, and it was really more a team disagreement than one between the two of us. But that said, you know, I love spending time with Mark. We work together uh, with with Channel Four, of course. We we do socials together, and he's turned out to be, you know, in his own right beyond racing. Uh, very successful, you know, businessman, manager. Sure. But it is difficult, isn't it? And there's many other guys that I'm good friends with. What about Damon? With. You've left him out. Well, Damon and I, we had different phases of our life. When we, you know he had the uh, all the pressure of being forced into being the team leader when Ayrton passed. It was a traumatic period. He was 34. I was 24. You know, I was young, dumb, and just looking for my own opportunity. And he, you know, he was trying to get on top of understanding just what had happened in Imola
1: glad you said that yeah
0: so uh, so you know Damon and I uh you know we, we we have the occasional dinner I respect him and his achievements in a very short period of time won more than 20 Grand Prix, drove for Jordan of course as you know and you know isn't I think given the acknowledgement for his his speed and tenacity as a race driver um, possibly because it was just that one title. But to do that one title, which could have been two, against Michael Schumacher at his brilliant best, I think sums up just how good Damon was. So, yeah, I think that you you mellow as you get older and you see life differently. But there, there's not any of my previous teammates, whether it's Tony Aluzzi or Christian Klein or Robert Dornbos or, uh, or, or, you know, maybe Kimi would be the only one that it would be a slightly slightly awkward conversation because I've never really spent any time with Kimi a couple but, of times. it
1: isn't a conversation with Kimi, yeah, is it? No,
0: not really. Not really. But what I really admire how Kimi seems to live his life with his family, his kids, um, doesn't have, you know, he's obviously got enough going on that that keeps him busy that he turns up at the Eau Grand Prix. You know, I've chosen to still be very active around the sport. One, because I enjoy it. Two, because there's business opportunity. He, he seems to be off doing other things. Whether that will sustain him in, in his next life's journey, who
1: knows, but uh, I wish him all the very best. You've touched a little button there, which my recall rate was because he, he gave up and then went into rallying, didn't quite work, and he came back to be a big success in Formula One. Yeah. So uh, he's one of the ones that we, should, we haven't really thought about as to say, well, who can come back? We were talking about uh, Daniel Ricciardo. Can he really find the new Daniel inside his soul? Well, Kimmy was able to do that.
0: Yeah. Well, that does then lead us nicely on to Sebastian Vettel, who recently I uh, did the event at the, the Nordschleifer in, in Germany, at the Nürburgring, and he, he put it out there. I, I thought he was looking you know, almost not fitter, but he looked trimmer than I recall at the end of his, his uh, Aston Martin journey. He'd had a haircut, so that always makes people look a bit fresher. And he was saying, look, never say never. I'm race fit. It's like he hasn't quite closed the chapter. So he retired from Aston Martin, who were having a difficult time, and he was clearly, you know, taking the brunt of that. Suddenly they bounce back with a quick car, and Fernando Alonso reaps the benefit of that because he hadn't played a part in in the development or the recruitment at that stage. And, you know, he'll have his finger on, on that going forward. But could a Seb come back? Yeah, maybe he is the Kimi.
1: Maybe he's the one. Be careful what you wish for here, David, because uh, there are some drivers who have never been able to uh, just... Turned the page, close the chapter, finished the book, um, and I know I joke all the time with him because I've really taken like taking the Mickey out of him because he takes it out of me. It is none other than our great friend John Watson. Uh, John is in his late seventies now. I hope he wouldn't mind me saying that, but what an outstanding driver he was! But given half a chance, he'd be back in the car tomorrow. That's for sure.
0: Well. I think knowing when to move on is knowing when to wrap up. So that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week, of course. And remember to follow Formula for Success on Spotify and wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can find us on social media with the handle at F1 for Success. EJ, I don't know about you, but I think
1: it's time you bought me a pint at the pub. Ah, but well just before I do that, I check if I have any money. I think I've left it all at home, David. Well, they anyway. they'll, they'll They'll take you on credit. <laughs> <laughs> um, David, you're absolutely right. <clears throat> do you know what? It's really fun listening to the questions. And I urge the people at home, you know, when you're finished and you've got that second or two together pop us a little note, make sure, because we want to be sure to answer the questions that you most want to hear. And that's what we're here for, to impart any bit of knowledge that we might have to you guys at home. And with that, I'll say, bye for now.